top bands. Okay, so let me just boys, summarize. Boys, boys, we've boys, talked boys. about. We've talked lots, about. Lots, lots, lots. Sorry. Shut <laughs> up. <laughs> Beth, are you sure we can't have Alistair leave for the next? <laughs> season? You can stay. No, I want to stay. I like this. I like you guys. I tell you what, if you can find a way for me to live in your time zone, then <laughs> we'd have better chances. Get a doctor, the podcast for which I don't really have a tagline. <laughs> um, Not for this episode, at least. <laughs> yeah, I guess I didn't. I didn't think of one. I don't think I did a tagline last time either. Well, uh, strap in and find out what this podcast is gonna be about. Because <laughs> boy, have we got an episode for you this week. Um, Let's introduce ourselves first. Uh, My name is Beth, and I'm a PhD student in particle physics at Sapienza University of Rome. And my name is Alistair, and I'm a PhD candidate in chemistry at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. And my name is Sienna. I am a PhD student in neuroscience at McGill University in the lovely city of Montreal. Woo! Lovely. And we are the PhD3 Derby! To be some... Some to be sooner than others. Yeah. yeah. Beth, you mentioned you mentioned we're the PhD three, but I think you have an announcement for our listeners. Yeah. Um, that you, you teased in the review episode of our last season. Yes, indeed. So some people know, most people probably don't know that this is going to be my last ever episode with Not Yet a Doctor. No, we'll miss no. you. Cry. I'll <laughs> <laughs> miss you guys too. I guess we'll talk a bit more about the future and stuff at the end. That's my assumption. So stay until the end for the future. Yeah, yes. to stay until the end for the future, because it will be the future by the time we get to the end. It's true. Um, <laughs> that's and you can't how... get to the future any other way, kids. Right, that's the second rule of thermodynamics. Now that uh, we're on a science podcast, I might just as well say that. Anyway, before the future, we've got the present, and in the present, we are going to <laughs> gift you hey. um, a lovely summary of season two of Not Yet a Doctor, and therefore, we invite you to strap in and listen up. Listen up, kids. Yeah. If you listened to the previous episode, the previous review episode of season one, then you will know what the format of this is going to be. So we asked on social media, we asked um, our friends and family and listeners, everybody, to send us in questions, science questions or personal questions or questions about the podcast. Um, And a lot of people did exactly that. And therefore, we are going to get to some of those questions in a bit. But before that, we're going to summarize our favorite parts of season one. Season two. Season two, my bad. <laughs> Our favorite parts of season two. Because <laughs> season one is in the past now. Yeah. And we're only concentrating on the present. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to hear our favorite parts of season one, you can go back to the previous yeah. episode and listen yes. to that bonus episode. Season one review. Mm-hmm. It was great. So I'll jump right into it. Um, my favorite episode 
uh, from season two was definitely one that I spent a long time editing, which was the Color Vision episode. <laughs> it was so good. Sienna, I mean, we had to cut down so much from I that know. episode. So that episode was so long. I think it started out at being like an hour and 45 minutes was our first cut, something like that. I think it and was, And we had yeah. to keep cutting it down. We struggled to take everything yeah. out. And it... Uh, it really catalyzed a moment for us to be like, <laughs> we have to self-edit before we record because we yeah. can't bring this much material and only get one episode out of it. So uh, yeah. it was a great episode, but I apologize, guys. <laughs> I think it wins the award for the most number of people on this podcast at once. I mean, at true, once. True, true. You had an interview with yeah. three different people, yeah. four different yeah. people. Yeah. And so was, then the three of us. It was three different people and then the three of us. One PI, two main authors. Yes, yes. But there were, I remember them talking about a th- another author mm-hmm. that was one of the students that wasn't Three actually Three first interviewed. authors, I got two of them to talk to. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> It was such a great episode, though, and if you haven't listened to it, what have you been doing with all of this time? Like, you've had a long time to listen to this, and you should probably rectify that right now. Yes, and I mean, it covered so many different topics yeah. um, over the interviews. I mean, talking about uh meg and talking about uh like how the work was done and we even did i think it was it was the second time we did a little experiment oh Um, yeah that was so fun i didn't include this as a clip because it actually doesn't really reference this episode but there's a part in the clip i'll just explain it um there was a part in the episode which you can go listen to after we do the experiment that beth you say well actually we did an experiment in my (laughs) episode on neutrinos and i was very upset by that because it wasn't (laughs) neutrinos it was antimatter it was antimatter you're right it was antimatter and yeah so um, go listen to the antimatter episode if you want to do another experiment that's very involved you'll love it Yeah, yeah 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 it's um super tricky but I, I wanted to pick, to keep things succinct, I wanted to pick my favorite clip from this behemoth of an episode. And so okay. uh, here it is now. You know, I think that's not the only role of color, but I think what color is doing for us is probably much more about, about indicating state changes, telling mm-hmm. us about the likely subjective experience we have of that object as opposed to what an object is. So, so much of visual neuroscience has been preoccupied with object recognition, object identity, telling us what is that thing. And I think what color does is it doesn't tell us what it is. It tells us whether or not you're likely to care about it. It tells us how it is, almost. Yeah, how it is and, and really whether or not it's likely to be something that you'll want to engage with or not, mm-hmm. you know, what it means to you doesn't, it's really not telling you the thing. It's saying, you know, do you care? I mean, the best example I think are bananas. Throughout the life of a banana, its shape does not really change very much, but it changes color quite dramatically from green through, you know, orangey yellow, bright yellow to a kind of brown and then black. Mm -hmm. Uh, Throughout that, that sort of temporal evolution, it's the color that's telling you about the likely relevance of that object to you. The mm-hmm. shape information is basically the same throughout. It's always like, yep, there's a banana. Um, yeah. And what's fascinating to me is if you ask people, what is the color of bananas? They will tell you they're yellow. Mm-hmm. You're like, no, they're not. 
the bananas are lots of different colors. You just jumped to a conclusion that the question I was asking was, what are the colors of bananas you care about? Mm -hmm. But really, you know, colors, bananas can be lots of different colors. such fond memories of that episode yeah of that interview I thought that, too. that clip was a good kind of summary yeah. of everything we learned in that episode because we ended with these interviews with the, the main pi bevel conway <laughs> and um i think he had some really interesting things yeah. to say about the research in general i mean the research that they did in this episode super cool super neat but i i think the idea that like color tells us more about objects that are relevant to us and how an object is like i think that's a really cool concept yeah damn i loved that episode of colors that interview was so good and i think maybe it would be hard to choose a highlight because we covered so much and i remember thinking like how am i going to get them from understanding how the eye works to understanding how color works Mm -hmm. to then the whole paper that we discussed to then the, the conclusion of all of the cool things that um, especially like Bevel and I talked about, Dr. Conway, talked about at the end of his interview, which was like all of these different things about color and the way it interacts in our lives. And yes. the dress, of course. Oh, yeah. We, and the dress. We, we did the meme. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not even sure if that made it into the episode in the end. I think we cut that out of the episode, actually. I think we did. We had a whole conversation because Bevel Conway did a few papers and studied the dress, the infamous dress, how color processing went into whether or not you saw it as white and gold or blue and black. So there's just so much that we covered and like popular culture and color. And If you'd like ah, to hear so good. the dress edit, uh, send yeah. us an email at phd yeah. be at gmail.com or get in touch with us at notyetadr on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And let us know that you'd like to hear more of our Mm -hmm. uh, unedited episodes or something. I don't know. (laughs) Tell us that you're interested in us. Yeah, because there's some really cool science about why that worked the way that it worked. (laughs) Why that is the way that it is that it is. As we say in one episode that I was listening to (laughs) our catalog recently, and I think it's probably the best tagline for our (laughs) podcast. (laughs) Well, it's better than mine today, which was I don't have a tagline for this podcast. So, uh... (laughs) Well, this is the bonus episode, so nobody will care. So that's my that's my favorite episode from season two. I hope you guys, you listeners, will like it, and both you, Beth and Sienna, like it as well. Loved it. Big fans. Jumping on to my favorite episode of this season, my, it was, I mean, there were a lot of really good episodes, but this one stood out to me because it told such a fun and exciting story. Like I really felt like we started at the beginning and all this history that was really interesting that I didn't know about, and then we get to the end where I'm like. I think there's been, I think we've discovered dark matter. What? (laughs) Huh? And nobody's talking about it. Like, how did I not know this? So um, that would be our dark matter episode, which is episode 12 of season two. Mm -hmm. And so I've just pulled some clips that we can listen to that kind of take us through that story like flow. So Vicky was a physicist in the 1930s. And in 1933, he made an estimate of, or well, he he was studying galaxy clusters, and he found that galaxies at the edges of clusters were moving faster than they should, uh, based on the number of galaxies that he could see in the cluster. And so from that, his measurement turned out to be uh, significantly imperfect, 
um, <laughs> because that's how science works. <laughs> but he assumed that there must be more matter around than he could see. So that's the beginning. There mm. must be more matter. She screamed <laughs> yeah. into the void. Or he screamed, I guess, but I'm screaming right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then we jump to another cool thing we talked about. One of the outcomes of uh, Einstein's theory of general relativity is that uh, light can be bent by, by gravitational fields just as much as things with mass can be bent by gravitational fields. And this leads to effects called gravitational lensing, which is where if you have a really massive body between you and something in the distance, then whatever's in the distance, the light from it will get bent around that massive body. And you can end up seeing two, uh, you can see, you can end up seeing the same object twice, Mm -hmm. or else it might become like smeared or uh, generally distorted. Um, by the gravitational field. So now we've got two two cool things about galaxies is that one, there seems to be more stuff there than we can see because of how they move. I guess that's mm-hmm. what Vicky said. And two, we have this idea called gravitational lensing where things with stuff in them will bend light around them. Yeah. Um, so these are kind of like what led to the prediction of dark matter in these um, in our podcast at least which I thought was just super interesting because I didn't know that there was all this stuff. I I knew there was stuff in galaxies, but I didn't know that there was all this. Like, I didn't understand how we found out that there was stuff missing that we knew was there. Mm -hmm. So it was because we saw the effect of the stuff, even though we couldn't see the stuff. Yeah, Yeah. I'm really glad that that came across because I said it in the last episode and I've said it many other times that I think the process of science is really cool and how you go from observations to understandings is really cool. So I'm really glad if I managed to transmit that. And this is a really cool one to follow right after the color vision episode because like so often how science works is it's based on things we can see. Like we really love visual evidence as evidence of things. Yeah. That's probably yeah. our favorite kind of evidence. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This whole episode is about stuff we cannot see. Like, we, you just cannot see dark matter in the ways that we want to be able to see it. You have to look for, like, other evidence that it's there. Yeah. I don't know. I loved that. Okay, so the next thing that we jump into is uh, one of my favorite moments of this episode, which was a recurring joke that came throughout. Um, and it was just, uh, I thought... Some of our top tier humor. So if you don't find us funny as people, this might be the part where you want to hit that like 15 second skip forward because if you don't find us funny as people, why are you listening to this podcast? Because they really like science. You can listen listen to it through the science. Okay. But anyways, um, you should find us funny as people. We are funny. Because we are hilarious. (laughs) And this is definitely one of those parts. (laughs) At least it was for me. If you throw paper and pens at a wall enough, eventually <laughs> there will be a thesis. That, yeah, exactly. That's what quantum mechanics says. I've been doing it wrong this whole time. I've been <laughs> typing it up in a Word document on my computer. No, you know what uh, you should do, Alistair? It's just... you should throw your computer at the wall. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> I need my computer. <laughs> oh, God. Um, 
can we just okay. be clear? Not yet a doctor does not take responsibility for any of the advice. Anyone on throwing stuff at anything. Yes. Exactly. Um, but there are also photons popping in and out, like even in the darkest room that you can imagine, in mm-hmm. the deepest, darkest depths of outer space, there are particles popping into and out of existence all of the time, yes. just for fun, because mm-hmm. they like doing it. No, wait, do you mean, do you mean like literally popping in and out of existence or like passing through the space? No, I mean, like, one minute they exist and one minute they don't exist anymore. No, stop. This is the part of physics I don't like. I don't like that things like... This is my favorite part of physics. <laughs> this is really the only physics that I've ever been interested in. It is a real mind bender. Mm-hmm. So I understand where you're coming from, Alistair. But I agree with Sienna that it's cool, right? Isn't it okay, cool? It's cool, but it kind of, like... And your thoughts I, pop in and out of existence, so why can't particles pop in and out of existence? <laughs> like, I don't like thoughts popping in and out of existence. I like, like a linear trajectory. Alistair is anti-thought, and um, Sienna uh, wants us to finish on time. So <laughs> <laughs> there's so much contained in that clip. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> I feel like that is actually quite a good summary of the podcast. Actually, <laughs> literally, yeah. It was I, um, so good. I have a few thoughts on that. First of all, there have been many moments in writing my thesis, even since that episode came out, that I've wanted to throw my computer at the wall. (laughs) But I need my computer to finish my thesis, so, you know. Also, uh, I think we have very different views on what's fun about (laughs) physics. I, so maybe, maybe, Beth, if you'll indulge me, how do these things pop in and out of existence? Like, how is, how is that allowed? Okay. If any physicist could now switch off, <laughs> that would be great because I did study quantum field theory um, and I even passed it in fourth year, but I would not consider it among my strengths. But essentially, there are fields that occupy all of space. Like, there are, like, the electromagnetic field exists in all of space, the gravitational field exists in all of space, mm-hmm. and uh, other kinds of fields exist. And a field you can think of as a, like, map of values. So you can have, I think I've talked about this in other episodes, but you could have a temperature field, for example, yes. in your room, which just means that you can have a value of temperature for every point in your room, and in some places it'll be higher, mm-hmm. and in some places it'll be lower, um, and that's just what a, a field means, really. So the electromagnetic field will have, like, certain strengths in certain regions that will depend on various different things right and you are allowed to get energy from that field mm-hmm. and turn that energy into mass and that is based on einstein mm-hmm. who said m equals e squared two <laughs> what sienna <laughs> <laughs> i just said the first things that popped into my head like particles. This is why we shouldn't let thoughts just <laughs> pop into our heads and actually develop yeah. them all the way. <laughs> so, Einstein said E squared equals M squared C to the fourth right. plus P squared C squared. Yeah. You're right. So you can turn energy into mass and you can turn mass into energy is what Einstein says. Okay. And Heisenberg says you can go even further. You can borrow a bit of energy from the universe mm-hmm. as long as you do it for a short enough time. So you can, yeah, see, see this face. If only this was a, a vlog instead of a podcast. 
Um, Just wondering what the interest uh, rates on that is. <laughs> pretty damn high, which is why you can only do it for a very, very <laughs> short period of time. So you can create, and you do, like, in in the universe it happens, and in particle colliders it also happens, that you create particles that have more mass mm. than the energy that you've put in to create them. Mm. But then they have to decay really, really quickly into something else to get rid of that extra energy because... And, and like, the energy at the end, like, the energy that you get out at the very end has to match the energy that you put in at the beginning mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because it has to energy has to be conserved. But you're allowed to break conservation of energy... Just a little. Like, it depends. It's the, the, it's the product of the energy that you're borrowing and the time that you're borrowing it for that has to be very very small mm. wow so the longer so the more energy you're borrowing the shorter you have to do it right and these things take a lot of energy to create and so you have to do it yeah for i mean particles have some mass and therefore yep. interesting you know, cool take a lot of energy so it's just kind of it's just kind of like a transition from I almost kind of think of it like a phase transition, like condensation on a glass. Like you don't see water vapor in the air, but then when you put a cold glass somewhere, it condenses and turns into a more visible form. It's that's a very overly simplistic, but energy is water vapor and particles are condensation. Yeah. I mean, you can think of it that way, but there are problems with that analogy in that the particles of water vapor already exist in the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. They're already particles. And also, like, they don't necessarily... Like, they're probably not going to spontaneously go back into the atmosphere. No, you're right. They're going to sit on that glass for a while. Whereas... Although they do evaporate, so they kind yeah, of... But it's, a, it's a slower process. I think it's yeah. a good, like, metaphorical analogy. Just visually, like, if we... If yeah. We, if we just visually think of it, you yeah. can't see the w- water particles in the air, but you can see yeah. them on a glass, and then yeah. it drips, it's on the glass, but then might go away later when it's mm-hmm. no longer cold enough and it evaporates back into the air. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm a little bit more accepting of how particles can pop in and out of existence now if it's actually just like them. <laughs> almost like the energy field is dispersed, but then like, bloop, there's like a little nodule, and that's a piece of mass, yeah. and then bloop, yeah. it's back into the field, and it's like... Yeah. I think this yeah, is another thing exactly. of the podcast, is I like to make a lot of bloop noises. Yeah, the sound effects are really useful. Okay, so, well, this is the next clip. Like, if there are any particle physicists listening to this and they didn't listen to the bit where I mentioned Hungary, then they probably won't be thinking about this experiment. So... Weird time for particle physicists to just pop into our podcast, but, you know, they're particle (laughs) physicists. As they do. (laughs) They just pop in and out of existence. They miss miss the intro, but they just (laughs) pop in at this section. So that joke popped in and out <laughs> a few times. So many times. Yeah. And I just yeah. wanted to share one of those times, which I thought was funny. Yeah. So that thank you, good. particles, for popping in and out because it gave us more things to talk about. <laughs> yeah. I gotta say, high quality banter on that episode. I think our banter was like yeah, top eleven. So funny. Okay. So. Essentially, this whole dark matter story, you know, it starts with these prediction of more matter than what we can see with the gravitational lensing and the movement of galaxies. And then we get to talking about these kind of a few different experiments that happened that predicted this little particle to exist, um, which I didn't really pick a lot of clips of because a lot of it is very um, dense and you kind of need you need the whole episode to understand it. So just go listen (laughs) to the whole episode, guys. This isn't about that. This is about reviewing it and talking about the best parts. Go listen to the whole episode if you want to know about this really cool little particle that may or may not exist that you've never heard of. So 
I'm just going to skip to the end, though, where we talk about, like, what these discoveries, kind of like a summary of the discoveries that were made and how kind of cool and exciting it was. So we had a Hungarian group who found something at a mass of almost 17 mega electron volts. And they did this through radioactive decay of brillium-8. And they did this a few times and showed it was pretty pretty important. seemed to really be likely to be real. And then somebody named Feng came along, Jonathan Feng, and was like, maybe this isn't a particle. Maybe this is a force carrying particle. (laughs) I guess still a particle. Maybe this isn't a mass particle. Maybe this is a force particle. Is what I've understood. Well, basically, it's not. It was that it wasn't this type of force particle, but it was this other type of force particle, okay. essentially. But maybe it's not the Hungarians' theory. Maybe it's my theory. Yeah, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. Fair enough. He's a theoretical physicist. He has the. <laughs> yeah. He's, that's his job. <laughs> okay, so so the Hungarian team liked his idea, essentially. Nice. And they went back to their experiments and they decided to do more experiments apart from anything else i think that uh obviously when uh when you have a new result you want people to listen to you and you want to do everything you can to uh, make people listen to you and to stop anybody from saying ah yes but you want to shut down all those ah yes buts before they before they get there okay in october 2019 they uploaded to the archive which is where it is the particle physics preprint mm-hmm. server they uploaded a paper with results from a very similar experiment they'd done which now used helium so instead of turning lithium into beryllium they turned hydrogen into helium and they have now in the last few weeks um added some more results to this and uh, released a new preprint they now have three more data points which give a particle of the same mass at significances of 7.3 6.6 and 8.9 sigma they're seeing something very exciting (laughs) this is the discovery of a new particle like i am on the edge of my seat right now i how have i not heard about this i'm like for the past five years, somebody's been discovering a new particle and nobody's yep. talking about it. Like, hello, world. There's a particle, particle out there that weighs 17 mega electron volts and nobody's talking about it. Welcome to the world, X17. So, yeah, essentially, that like in physics, there's all these rules about p values, aka sigma values. And it was really cool to discover to learn about this and then discover that like these groups had had these discoveries happening within well within significant p values Mm -hmm. or sigma values so yeah there's a particle out there that you probably haven't heard about listener we've heard about because we talked about it you haven't heard about all this really cool physics research that is going on in particle physics discovering new particles all the time i want to be more cautious and and say there might be a new (laughs) particle (laughs) There might not be a new particle. Like, <laughs> go to the episode, mm-hmm. you'll find out, find out everything. There's obviously all sorts of qualifications to what you get to call a yep. new discovery and what you sort of need evidence-wise in order to really make something feel certain or feel like it gets to be added to the repertoire of particles that we already yep. know about. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It was really cool to hear about that 
being that process in progress, really. Like this is, if this works out, if they can get their results validated and uh, other people start seeing this significant effect at 17 mega electron volts where this little particle seems to make it might be resting. Um, it's not at rest, but it's resting. Just <laughs> chilling out. I'm gonna get that. <laughs> yeah. Then maybe we're gonna have a new particle in the particle book soon. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. we hope so. I hope so for you guys, but also for dark matter. Yeah. <laughs> 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 That's something I like about this podcast is not only do we explain kind of the basic science concepts. To for each other, like explaining the eye or explaining how we knew that dark matter could exist. But then we talk about the current, like cutting edge knowledge and then Mm -hmm. also like current cutting edge experiments and what's being done into the future, which Mm -hmm. I think is, is so cool that we kind of cover the gambit of knowledge. I like that too. Mm -hmm. And I hope our listeners enjoy it. I hope, I hope it's accessible to everyone because we have kind of the base knowledge that we explain. um, But then also, all of this really cool cutting-edge yeah. research. I hope it's accessible mm-hmm. too, because I think one of the things that we've all learned during this podcast is the massive gaps in each of our knowledge. Like, mm. especially <laughs> for me with biology, because I just know nothing. And so, like, <laughs> I am able to be almost a non-scientist when Sienna's talking and, like, ask all the, like, really <laughs> basic questions at me. Like, okay, but, like, what is dna <laughs> like how does it work like what is a gene help me out here yeah so and i do the same for yeah. physics so <laughs> alistair's really the best poised yeah being I'm, the sort of sandwich filling between biology and physics i have right. a little bit of except i mean if you go back and listen to our last review episode or the episode on uh place cells i was very confident in what i thought the homunculus <laughs> was and had no idea whatsoever I think I'm just overly confident about my knowledge in physics and biology, but really I have Oh, a white man is overly confident? (laughs) Wow. Color me surprised. Color me surprised. A cis white man being confident about nothing. Shocker. Never seen that before. We love you anyway, though. (laughs) We love you. (laughs) Anyways, that is the Dark Matter review episode. I hope you enjoyed those clips popping in and out and... (laughs) (laughs) you're so pleased the job will never die (laughs) (laughs) okay it was such a good episode you should really go listen to it it'll say that on your tombstone sienna she popped out of existence (laughs) i hope that would be like the best tombstone little thing Mm. although i do want to be planted and become a tree so maybe we Mm. can just like put like a little marker at the tree yeah all right well um burials aside (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna move on uh, I guess I should say I'm really glad that you guys like that episode because um, obviously it's what I work on day to day so I have like a vested interest but I really enjoyed putting it together for you guys so I'm happy if you liked it moving on to my uh, favourite episode of season 2 and this is an Alistair episode um, and it's all about bees yeah. And if you're wondering why a chemist was talking about an animal, so were we. <laughs> um, until uh, until you until you explained it to us, I guess, until you started the episode. So I think Sienna started the trend in season one with the play cells episode of not telling the others about what your next episode was going to be about. Mm. 
Um, I think you started that with place cells. Okay. I think I think so. You said you had a really exciting thing to talk about. Hoped we didn't know what it was going to be, and then yeah, and then didn't tell us not what to it was. tell you. It's true. I didn't tell you. Yeah. Before. And then so. we kind of just did that, and it was kind of fun to surprise the yeah. others. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Keep people surprised. So Alistair like teased us with the single word bees. He told us yeah. it was about bees. And Sienna was like, that's my territory. How dare you talk about a biological thing? I'm so mad. Um, and then ended up loving the episode that Alistair put together anyway. So anyway, um, I'm going to play a quick clip, about two minutes long, of why Alistair was talking about bees. Um, so I'm going to let Kate introduce a little bit about the isotopes that they work with. So there are four stable isotopes of lead. And lead 204 is, is the least abundant. That's basically primordial lead. It's, it's been here since the birth of the universe, lead 204. Mm-hmm. But lead 208, 206, and 207, those are the three most abundant isotopes of lead, they're all stable daughter products of long convoluted radiogenic decay chains, radio, radioactive decay chains of uranium-238, thorium-232, and because the earth is so old, right, there's been time to accumulate these other isotopes of lead. And so the amount of those three daughter products of lead, the 208, 207 and 206. That's going to depend on time. First of all, it's like a ticking clock sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And and the initial amounts of uranium and thorium in that 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 existed in that rock that eventually produced that ore deposit or so forth. So that's in general how it works and because these the differences sometimes in the abundance of these isotopes is so small uh, for better precision, we often measure them in terms of relative to the primordial lead, the lead 204. So that's why you'll see in the literature uh, a ratio, a lead ratio. It's just, it's easier to look at the differences in the ratios. You'll have better precision and th- the data is a lot easier to interpret in that sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Kate was talking about lead isotopes. We're going to be talking about lead today. But we started off talking about bees. Mm-hmm. And we were like, okay, this is like, we were like fully engaged about bees. And then we suddenly went into chemistry and lead isotope um, ratios. And we were like fully on board with chemistry. And then like at some point, <laughs> Alistair brings us back and is like, you guys are probably wondering what these two things have to do with each other. And we were a bit like, Oh, yeah, there are two different things going on here. <laughs> I think at one point someone says, oh, yeah, I completely forgot about the bees. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that might have been me. <laughs> so if you want a full answer to all of these questions, and the best way to get your full answer is to go and listen to the, to the episode in full. Mm-hmm. But here is um, a clip about... Uh, how bees have previously been used, um, they've already been used to monitor the environment. And hopefully this will give you some idea of what the researchers were doing. People have been using 
bees as biomonitors since mid-century. It's been several decades now. Uh, but the use of, of lead isotopes is sort of the new thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but, but so Dominique uh, was put into contact with this local nonprofit organization. They're called Hives for Humanity. They're a really, really wonderful organization. If, if anyone who's listening is in the Vancouver area and wants to get involved with them, they should look them up. They're really cool. They, uh, they manage several hundred hives in Metro Vancouver, throughout Metro Vancouver. And what they do is they work with people, people who have been, they've overcome addiction or they've, um, they've previously been homeless or they've been somehow marginalized by society and they can work with Hives for Humanity to learn beekeeping or other related trades, which is, is really cool. It's really That's awesome. a fantastic organization. And so they had originally when they first started, I think was oh, probably a several years before 2014, but they started producing honey and the honey you know, as, as a bit of fun marketing, they were marketing it like in various terroirs, kind of like wine. So they would be like, oh, this is the Kitsilano Vancouver honey. This is the downtown east side honey. This like you could buy the honey from your neighborhood. And they all tasted a little bit different and it was just a fun, a fun way to market it. But there were critics and they said, well, how do you know there's not heroin in your honey? And they'd say really cruel things like that. And, uh, so, of course, Hives for Humanity sent honey to several laboratories to test for various things, and some honey made it to Dominique's lab. And uh, she, of course, does the inorganic testing, and so they tested it for metals, including various heavy metals, which are neurotoxic, of course, like lead and cadmium. But when you have elevated amounts of those metals, it's usually indicative of human activity, right? or a city center or a, a dirty rail yard or a port or something like that. But of course, all of the honey that we analyzed in Vancouver is of course perfectly safe for consumption. I think we calculated in the most lead rich honey, so to speak, from downtown in the city was you would have to eat over half a kilogram a day for like a week straight to reach that sort of bottom edge of of the FDA restrictions. So it, it's really not, <laughs> the honey is perfectly fine. It's one of the things I don't think I mentioned actually in the episode, the idea of marketing the different terroirs is really interesting because bees actually have a fairly small um, field radius. Like they only go out looking for flowers within a small radius. And so you actually can have different flowers and flavors of the honey based on where these bees are. So you could have a Kitsilano honey and it's these flowers that are available and in Kitsilano and in the neighborhoods around there. Okay, Kitsilano is a, is a neighborhood of Vancouver? Of Vancouver. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. One thing I wanted to say, I mean, it, it kind of goes for the whole episode. I really loved this episode and talking with Dr. Weiss and Kate Smith about these, this research really actually informed my own research. And, um, because I do, it, in my research, I look at these toxic elements in soils, you know, these risk assessments that looking at, you know, you'd have to eat two kilograms of the honey. I've kind of done that in my own research and, and a lot of my colleagues do that. So it's, it's really cool how this podcast has kind of 
helped me with my own PhD research. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You say you have to eat two kilograms of honey to get this, like, potentially toxic dose, where you start to get close to toxic, which is definitely <laughs> really high, and I don't think anyone would do that. But also, being a biologist, I know that human behavior is fucking weird. And, like, you always... I wonder what, like, the highest level of variance you have to account for in these things are. Like, yeah, somebody... I don't think anyone will eat two kilograms of honey just because, like, how would you get two kilograms and how would... Like, that might be beyond the amount that anyone would be able to eat at all. But one pound of honey? Two pounds? How much honey is unreasonable to assume that any one human might actually eat? Knowing how weird humans are. (laughs) Someone someone maybe out there could or would eat two kilograms of honey a day. I don't think they would eat two kilograms of honey a day. I think two kilograms, I think you are outside of the range of human behavior, but I wonder what would be within the range of human behavior, even if it is like a small subset of humans, like a few humans on earth might behave this way. I mean, like these are really, like that is a really important question to bring up. And I think it's like, I hadn't thought about it. It's really interesting. But like, I guess the flip side of it is like, if you're eating like not again not two kilos but like (laughs) let's say half a kilo of honey a day yeah then you're probably gonna have other problems that are gonna show up sooner than the lead poisoning Mm -hmm. true yeah another thing too is these calculations are based on body weights Mm -hmm. so often children are our highest risk receptors they're called yeah and um because they have a lower body weight so it might not be two kilograms a day for children it might be Mm mm-hmm half a kilo right um yeah one of the other things is that the toxicity is Mm -hmm. defined based on specific guidelines and it's often um responses in the body to levels of lead and cadmium and other things it's not death we don't death Mm -hmm. is not our upper limit no i know i know it's yeah so so i didn't know that but yeah one of the things for lead is elevated blood levels so the limit that's set by health canada She mentions FDA. It's a similar thing in the FDA. Um, The level that's set is based on an increase in the blood lead level of a certain amount. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you could eat, like, not that you should, but you (laughs) could eat two kilograms. You could eat two kilograms of honey a day and reach that threshold and have elevated blood levels and a potential for nephrotoxicity. It affects your kidneys in adults. It affects IQ in children. But um, anyway. So, like, you're at a risk for those health effects. Mm-hmm. You're yeah. not going to die. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying you should eat two kilograms of honey. There's also other problems with that. Yeah, I'm yeah. not saying that eating lead is fine. I'm just saying that, like, the levels that are set are based on uh, certain um, health criteria. So. Yeah. Right. So they're, like, pretty cautious anyway. Exactly. It's very conservative. Risk assessment is very conservative. Alison, thank you for your interesting like update on that mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. extra pieces of information about like blood lead levels because it's interesting to trace that these years of research have not been for nothing i've been doing a lot of studying <laughs> for my defense so <laughs> <laughs> we love to hear it okay i have two more minutes on comparing uh honey to soil okay all right is this going to become a way of actually monitoring levels of these of like lead or other elements because like you've already said you you've already said we already analyze soils for these kinds of things and my guess is that soils are also quite quick turnaround things because like if you get rain then you can 
already see the difference in the soil immediately after the rain or like then it will get washed away and then it will change and like it changes really quickly um and honey like it's looking like that's also a fairly quick turnaround kind of thing um so will it replace something or will it just be another tool in our armory has it got access to something that we don't have access to via soils or something else so as kate touched on bees and honey have been used as biomonitors for a while Mm -hmm. Um, a key thing of their research is the isotope ratio Mm. i think there are challenges with honey in that there's a lot of water in honey and so you're not getting a very high amount of your elements that you're looking for and it's a very high sugar matrix there's a lot of sugar in honey which makes it difficult to prepare the sample for analysis Mm. Um, soil is also very difficult to analyze you have to use really really strong acids to break it down but soil is more conventionally used so i don't know if it would replace it but i think it would be another another tool okay in the tool belt like you said i think it's really cool i mean the, the more ways we can look at environmental contamination um the better because you might there might even be a scenario where you measure the soil levels and they're low but then you measure the honey levels and somewhere the bees are finding lead in this area that's alarmingly high and then you go and you know test the water and you test other fields Mm. and like i don't know like there's the potential that these bees could be picking up contamination from other sources because they're Mm -hmm. bees they're animals plus i just like because you don't have to like i mean as much as i love field work it also does already save you the trip yeah like it saves you using gasoline and contaminating the environment with lead to go out and get your soil samples to test for lead because the bees are yeah. already collecting it, and they do it gasoline-free. I think we, we kind of said this in the episode, but I definitely, when I was talking with Kate Smith, talked about this, like, it's it's cool to think about the bees as being these little field workers, and they all go out, mm-hmm. and they, you know, collect samples for you, and then bring it back and homogenize it into arguably a difficult matrix to analyze, <laughs> but, like, they do a lot of the work for yeah. you, um, which mm-hmm. is pretty cool, so. Yeah. That is cool. Um, science is cool, guys. Mm-hmm. I also have one very final, it's very short, um, comment from Sienna Uh-oh. about how you can tell a bee from a wasp. Bees are like jelly beans. Wasps are like if you sharpened a jelly bean. <laughs> you know what? That wasn't as inaccurate as I was maybe expecting. It's probably true. <laughs> I think that's probably, I mean, yeah. I think for a lot of wasps and for a lot of bees, that holds true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't use it to <laughs> Just, identify all wasps or bee species, but... Yeah, don't risk your life on it, guys. If you're in the, the wild and you see a bug and you just... there's The other issue is there's flies that look a lot like bees and there's also, like, hornets and shit, but hornets look scary, so... Mm. The jelly bean was <laughs> frightening. <laughs> Hornets are frightening jelly beans. They don't look like jelly beans at all. But if you're just trying to distinguish a jelly bean looking creature, if it's sharpened, it might be a wasp. I'll stand by yeah. this. Honestly, I will stand by this. I have you nothing to lose. Right. Right. <laughs> as, as ridiculous as it kind of sounds, I think it is pretty accurate. Yeah. So I like it as a description, <laughs> but... um. That doesn't, that's not going to stop me from laughing at it. <laughs> <laughs>
And in any case, if you're afraid, just don't, like, just give a space. Don't yeah. need to kill a bee or a wasp. 100% agree. Yeah. I'd agree. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I just wanted to have, like, to make a, an overarching comment about this episode, which was that when I re-listened to it the other day, mm-hmm. um, honestly, my impression was, like... I know that scientists sometimes use the idea of beauty to, like, talk about science, which is something I've never really understood. Hmm. Like, a lot of scientists will tell you this theory is really beautiful, this equation is really beautiful, and I don't really understand that aesthetic choice for for something as hard and as cold as that. But, like, this episode, like, if I had to sum it, in, sum it up in one word, I really think that it is beautiful. I think it's a really beautiful episode because... Mm-hmm. It teach like not only does it teach you a lot, but it's really gentle. It's really interesting, like the charity work, um, doing things for human beings, and also at the same time doing things for the for the world that we live in, and um, doing all of that, and then using science to help that and to understand how that's happening. I think that's really cool. Mm-hmm. We do stand mutual aid here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you, Alistair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and thanks to Kate Smith and Dr. Weiss for yeah, some great and it, and go and just to say the name of the organization again. It's called House for Humanity that is mm-hmm. um, helping disadvantaged people through beekeeping. I follow so. them on Instagram, and they make really cute posts about their hives. Yeah, yeah. they do. So. Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess that finishes the summary section of this episode. Is mm-hmm. that right? Yeah. Should we dive into some questions then? Head first. Yeah. Let's Splash in. do it. Okay. I think I'm on questioning duty. I'm yeah. going to question yeah. you guys. Oh, God. <laughs> Uh-oh. Okay. Okay, wait. I'd like my lawyer present. No. <laughs> no lawyers. <laughs> Where's Gavin? Um, <laughs> He's not a lawyer yet. So we're going to start out with some sciencey questions, then we're going to get into some philosophical life questions, All and right. then we're going to leave so let's get into it (laughs) uh i have a question submitted by the lovely woman ellen kirolf who uh, is a big fan of our podcast from day one Mm -hmm. so thank you ellen for following along and she has asked someone from us one of us to explain carbon dating Okay, I can, I can take this one. I did a little bit of Googling. So carbon dating is actually a really cool concept that I might actually do an episode on because I okay. think it's really neat. But I'll give a brief summary. Mm-hmm. Um, so we talked about isotopes in the bees episode. Isotopes are just different um, elements with different numbers of neutrons. Mm-hmm. And so we can talk about, I think in the episode I said we have carbon. And the common isotope is 12 because mm-hmm. uh, it has six neutrons in its nucleus. But there's one that has eight neutrons in its nucleus, which is carbon-14. Mm-hmm. And they have different levels in the environment. Um, interestingly, though, um, carbon-14 is created when cosmic rays interact with atmospheric nitrogen. Basically, cosmic rays bombard nitrogen in our atmosphere and create a little bit of carbon-14. And then that carbon-14 gets incorporated. It's made into carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And then that gets breathed in and it gets excreted. The carbon and it's in cycle. Exactly. So the way that carbon-12 moves around, this carbon-14 also moves around just at a bit of a lower level. But 
while while a plant or an animal is living, it's exchanging this carbon with its environment. It's breathing, it's respirating, it's doing all this stuff, turning it into sugars. When it dies, this carbon exchange stops. And so then the amount of carbon-14 begins to decrease as this carbon-14 undergoes radioactive decay. So we can actually see when an animal or plant died based on its carbon-14 level. And so um, you can measure like wood or bone and you can then calculate when around uh, this plant or animal died. Um, the half-life of carbon-14, so that's the time it takes for half of the carbon-14 to have been decayed to other things, is 5,730 years. So we use it to look at the dating of plants and animals on very long time scales. Um, the oldest dates that can be reliably measured with this method is 50,000 years ago. So if you're looking Dang. at something that's between 50,000 and like 5,000 years ago, you can see pretty accurately when that plant or animal died. So that's how carbon-14 dating works. It was developed, I'd be remiss if I didn't say he was credited with developing it. It was a team of people at the University of Chicago in the 1940s, headed by Willard mm. Libby. And Willard Libby uh, won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1960 for this work. So nice. it's a pretty cool technique. It's interesting that it's considered chemistry because um, as a physicist, <laughs> I would consider it my own. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you can... I would have considered it physics. I think there's a lot of things in chemistry that you can consider physics. Like the entire discipline? <laughs> How dare you? I will have my potential energy curves of <laughs> methoxane. I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. A lot of chemistry is just applied yeah. physics, right? Yeah, well, but I, I mean, think... yeah, but like, I no, I think it's... Um... I think more than more than that, it just really doesn't matter whether it's chemistry or physics is interesting, whatever it is. I think there's a very strong argument that it's paleobiology, and we're both wrong. <laughs> because, really, I mean, I don't do carbon-14 dating. It's the paleobiologists that do carbon-14 yeah. dating. And if you want to know about paleobiology, you should listen to our paleobotany episode. Yes, true. Which was episode 10 two from it was d d d 11 11 because it was a sienna episode episode 11 of season two yeah really good episode so that's yeah. carbon dating thank you alistair great explanation okay question two this is comes from the galactic center um from instagram i guess their instagram account go follow them mm -hmm. galactic center and yeah. they have asked us when light is on photons are released true fact but where will the released photons go after turning off the light? Beth? I'm claiming this yeah. one. Great. So what happens to the photons when, they, uh, when the light is turned off is exactly what's happening to the photons when the light is turned on, um, which is that they leave the light bulb uh -huh. and they spread out in more or less 360 degrees, or let's say 4 pi for anybody who likes working radians. Mm -hmm. But anyway, mm -hmm. they spread out evenly across all of space that is available to them and they will keep going until they reach something that absorbs them so they can get uh scattered by the air like we discussed in the previous episode uh, when i talked about why the sky is blue so they can um interact with atoms and molecules in the air and they can change direction or they can be absorbed in the air but they mostly aren't they mostly travel straight through without um without interacting really at all. So it's when they reach solid objects that they will really start to interact. 
And what happens when they reach those solid objects is they will either be transmitted, reflected, or absorbed. Okay. So if they are absorbed, then they'll go into the object and go no further, which is what will happen if you have something black. So, like, if you have black trousers on or something, then you know that your trousers get hot, and that's because it's absorbing all the radiation. They might get absorbed, or they might be transmitted, so they might uh, essentially go all the way through, like they mostly do in windows, mm-hmm. um, which is why you can see what's happening on the other side of a window. Makes sense. Or they might be reflected, like is what like what happens in mirrors. But it also happens from coloured objects. The colour that we see um, is the colour that's important to us, as we learned in the colour episode. But it is, in principle, at least at a very f- fundamental level, before you get to the biology of it, it is the uh, wavelengths of light that are reflected from a particular surface. And not all surfaces reflect the same combinations of wavelengths. Mm-hmm. And um, that's why not all su- surfaces look the same, same colour. So when you turn the light off, then you stop providing current to your to your filament, at least if it's an incandescent light bulb, and the photons stop being produced. But the photons that have already been produced will undergo their same pass Mm -hmm. the same things that all the photons previously were were doing but the reason why it seems immediate to you that there's no more light in the room is because light travels really fucking quickly (laughs) 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 so uh, if anybody comes up to you and asks you what is the speed of light the correct si unit is really fucking fast (laughs) (laughs) Um, so it travels at 300,000 kilometers per second. That's very fast. In fact, it is objectively fast. Most things in physics, you can't say that things are objectively one thing or another, but light is objectively fast because nothing could go faster. So Mm -hmm. it seems instantaneous to you because it's a very short space and uh, it's a very short time, but it's actually not. So there you go. I hope that answers the question. I think so. I think if I was the Galactic Center on Instagram, I would be pretty satisfied with that answer. So thank you for asking the question, Galactic Center. And now we know where the photons go. Where do the photons go? Well, don't we know? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The next question I have comes from Andromeda Drake. And she has asked... Why is it easier to float in salt water than in fresh water? Ooh, this is a good question. And I think this um, is a chemistry question, so I was going to leave it I think Austin. I can take this one. Thanks for your question. <laughs> um, so salt water is different than regular water in that it has a lot of salt in it. And different things have different densities. And so the density is how many molecules of water are packed into a certain unit of space. And so water's density is uh, defined as one gram per centimeter cubed, but salt water has a higher density because the salt allows the water to pack in with the salt molecules more. Anyway, so because salt water is more dense, there's more, you can think of it like there's more things there to hold up items that are in the water. Um, Mm -hmm. Buoyancy is the force that maybe we've learned about, we've heard about in school, and it's basically just the opposing force of the liquid that something is in um, keeping it floating or above uh, the surface and so you can 
that's a simple explanation. Salt water makes us more floaty because it has a higher density. I like and to think of it as the salt molecules in the water are just literally holding us up. Yeah. You're lying on a bed of salt. That's why it's easier. So we got an answer to that. Thank you, Andromeda. Yeah, thank you, Andromeda. So next up, we have an audio question emailed in from a listener. Hey, this is Alan from Montreal, Quebec. Big fan and longtime listener. I have what may be a silly question, but there's this general fact that biodiversity increases the closer you get to the equator, especially in jungle habitats. And I'm wondering, is there a specific biological reason for that? Or does it just have to do with the fact that winters get colder the farther you get away from the equator? Anyways, thanks for all the work you do and can't wait for season three. Alan! Alan! So, Alan actually asked me this question following season one, and I didn't really find a good answer. Um, Which is surprising, because when I went back to it, I did actually find something published in October 2019 that uh, gives it a bit of an answer. Oops. (laughs) I wasn't using the correct search terms, clearly. He's wonderfully persistent, Mm -hmm. and didn't let it go at Sienna Doesn't Know, and decided to ask again. So thank you, Alan, for asking this again. And so what he's talking about are these things called, uh, let me just make sure I say the right word, uh, latitudinal diversity gradients. And so this is just mm. essentially the fact that there is like varying degrees of diversity over the different latitudes. And like he says, there seems to be higher like numbers of different species within latitudes that get closer to the equator in variety of different kingdoms or domains of life so it's not Mm. just that um like uh it's not just like there's more mammals but there's more of like a lot of different things (laughs) right but there's also like this doesn't work all of the time and there's other reasons for why there's like diversity of species in different regions and it's not this isn't like a hard and fast rule for the equator but it, it does seem striking and there is like quite a number of quite a higher number of different species closer to the equator in a lot of different um, domains. Um, but there's a kind of a few different ideas for why this could have been. And so you can think of it, there's either like differential speciation rates. So new species are forming at a higher rate than in other places. Right, yeah. Or right. there's differing extinction rates. So species aren't going extinct as fast there. Okay. Mm. Yep. Or new species are dispersing into the tropics and staying. Okay. So these are kind of like three different ideas. And the one that says, now I'm so from a paper published in 2019, like I said, spatio-temporal climate change contributes to latitudinal diversity gradients. Essentially what they found is they used these simulations um, to try and generate uh, accurate models of how latitude, how the latitudinal diversity gradient looks to see like what sort of um, methods could have created the outcome that we see. And essentially what they find is that it seems to be speciation. So in their simulations, um, speciation makes the most sense to explain why there are more species in these uh, regions. Mm-hmm. So, and this seems to be like, um, just there's dynamic climate across these landscapes. So this allows for like a bunch of different like evolutionary measures to happen and different niches to form for different uh, species to exist within. Interesting. I think is sort of the very basic summary 
of this paper. Yeah. Okay. Um, maybe you have to do a whole episode on it. Maybe, yeah. yeah. I probably should. Was this just us fielding episodes for season three? Might be. Maybe. We'll never know. <laughs> let us know if any of these sound like an episode you want. Hmm? Um, can I let you know? Because that sounds like an episode Okay. I, <laughs> <laughs> I will read the paper more in depth then and do an episode on it. So thank you, Alan, for emailing in that audio question. And I hope that answer suffices yeah. for until we get into the actual episode next season. Uh, the next question I have is, again, from Andromeda. She actually did make sure to add, ask a biology, a physics, and a chemistry question, so thank you for that. Did yeah, she? she did. We, nice. I love that. Very nice. Um, so this is her biology question, so I will answer this. I did actually look it up. And her, she asked, why does your voice get lower when you have a cold? And mm. I was happy because she asked me this in person, and I was like, I think it's because of this. And then when I looked it up, it was because of that. I was like, yes! <laughs> <laughs> I can logic my way through biology questions. This is a great question, because I have zero yeah, idea. Yeah, so I'm going to just start with an explanation of what the vocal cords actually kind of look like, because I think this helps mm-hmm. it okay. make logical sense if you think about what, what we're dealing with mechanically. And so you have your windpipe, obviously, yep. and over top of that, essentially, like, two guitar strings, although they're more flaps, but you can imagine them as guitar strings strung across your windpipe are your vocal cords, one on each side. I did not know that's how they, like, I had some idea that it was, like, something, like, orientated vertically. No, so... That's so, like, I told you that I know <laughs> nothing about biology. So when you, like, push air out through your windpipe, yeah. The air, we have like incredible breath control that we probably don't even know about it because we learn it when we're really little kids and it's sort of this very um, natural thing for us to do. But you're pushing air out to modulate the vibration of those two strings that are strung across your windpipe. Okay. That makes so much more sense Yeah, <laughs> And so they're kind could of... You, sorry, could you also think of it like two halves of a balloon? Because it's, it's like covered on the other side, right? Yeah. How would a, a two halves of a balloon... Like you know when like you know what? when you have a balloon and you like squeeze it and it like buzzes? Hmm. Like two bits of latex light across with a small gap in between. Yeah. Because if you think of two strings, it's open on two sides. Yeah, 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 string. exactly. So it's like flaps, you're right. I'm just guitar strings yeah. I feel like everyone knows. Okay. Let me go with my analogy of guitar strings. It is flaps, it's okay. only open through a small hole in the middle, but Okay. Both of these things. If you know music, you know that there are two factors that kind of control the tone or pitch of your instrument of a string. And that is both um, sort of the tautness of the string. So whether it's tight or loose. And so we're doing that in our day to day life. If I want to speak higher like this, I'm actually just pulling my vocal cords more taut. Mm-hmm. So and then if I want to speak lower like this, I'm relaxing them so they're looser. Yeah. So that's one way you can modulate voice. The other way, which is the way that impacts when you have a cold, is through thickening of the vocal cords. So when you have a cold, you're often what can happen is your windpipe can become inflamed, that area can become inflamed, and it leads to thickening of the vocal cords. And as you know in a guitar, the thicker strings are the lower strings because they'll vibrate wow. more slowly because they're thicker, and that creates a lower sound. So when you have a cold, inflammation causes thickening, this creates a lower sound. This is also what happens to men when they go through um, testosterone-based puberty, is testosterone leads to thickening of the vocal cords. So that's also why they uh, get this drop in their voice tone level. Cool. 
That's a That's great so explanation. Interesting. <laughs> That's so interesting. Oh man. But no, you don't you don't actually have strings strung across. There are flaps of like this tendonish yeah. not tendon but um, no but the material. thinking of it like strings and like a guitar string especially thickening of a guitar string is a great analogy <laughs> that's a very good analogy i just i honestly both of those things were really helpful to me because as you've just discovered i had no idea before <laughs> then <laughs> what your vocal cords actually were yeah and it's actually super interesting how when you sing or when you talk the vocal cords interact and work mm-hmm. um we, women have something that's commonly referred to as a head voice or men have the falsetto mm-hmm. um they're kind of a myth but uh it it's it causes different ways of vibrating in the vocal cords which is cool and then vocal fry when you have like that mm-hmm. kind of raspy vocal fry that's also a really relaxed yeah vocal cord so that is also normally when you relax your vocal cords you have to press air through it more to get them to vibrate but when you're mm-hmm. using vocal fry mm-hmm. You're not giving them more air. So it can actually really, like, harm your vocal cords, apparently. But it's, like, it's this way of sounding really relaxed. Because you're relaxing your vocal cords and you're also, like, not pressing air through them as much. Yeah. Hmm. Is what I read about vocal fry. Yeah, super cool. A lot of cool ways to make a lot of cool sounds. (laughs) (laughs) Can we have more more of this content? Okay, so Beth also wants an episode on speech. Got it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I have a speech therapist friend oh, as well, so that's awesome. Um, it would be nice to like have an intelligent like, be able to bring something to that conversation. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Okay, so um, next question. That yeah. was thank you, Andromeda, for sending in that question. I had a lot of fun answering it. Um, thanks, mom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> next question. So we have a question from Margaret, who I don't know who that is, but Alistair might. Yeah, one of my friends. Okay. Thanks, Margaret. She's a chemistry friend. Okay, thank you, chemistry you friend, Margaret. Friends? Uh, she has asked, what happens when you get your PhD? Does the podcast name change? And I'm assuming she's referring Ooh. specifically here to Alistair, who is getting his PhD relatively soon. Yeah, I think out of the three of us, I might be getting my PhD the soonest. Yep. Um, I mean, I think we all hope so. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, when this episode... Well, we'll see. When this episode comes out, we'll know. Because my defense is next week. <laughs> Exciting! Yes. It's it's all it's all coming to an end. But um, I don't know. This is a great question. I've been asked this a few times. Uh, I don't know if anyone's asked you guys this, but as I've approached yeah. my PhD, um, what what do you guys think? I think the name will stay the same. Yeah. Well, so here's my thing. Yeah, I guess the issue is not yet a doctor. Once we're all doctors, that could be technically inaccurate. But it's a cute name. But I think, are we ever truly ever doctors? And we're not medical doctors. Yeah. We're never going to be medical not doctors. Me- At least I'm never going to be a medical doctor. I think doctor. we can leave the yet in. <laughs> yeah. Okay, fair enough. We're always, we're always learning and we're always yeah. not yet experts. And so I yeah. think the name, the name stays. Yeah. And we do do the little opening thing, PhD 3 2B, but we could just lose the 2B once it stops yeah. mattering. PhD 3. We will forever be, we will forever be the PhD 3. Yeah. Okay. But um, now we get to the real nitty gritty. Uh-huh. <laughs> what is the format going to look like? Ooh. Do you guys this know? That's a good question. Because it won't be PhD 3 no, 2B. It will be... PhD 2 for you. PhD and PhD <laughs> 2, 2B. PhD 2 for you. Why does it have to be... PhD 2 doesn't 
necessarily imply whether or not both yeah. people have their PhD or are doing their PhD. I think that's completely fair. PhD two for you. PhD two for you. I, I like that. that. But the possibility is we'll have interviewees on who also have a PhD, so it could still be the PhD three. Yeah. The third might just change this every episode. I think our email will stay the same because that's kind of a hard thing to change. Uh, yeah, because so many people already it. know it and email us there, so... <laughs> <laughs> I guess um, we should wrap up. I wanted to say, I wanted to explain my reasoning and also say thank you to uh, these two wonderful co-hosts. I've really enjoyed the, the two seasons that we've made, like a year and a half of podcasting mm-hmm. now. I'm really glad that we did it. Uh, I'm sorry that it, it took a pandemic to make us do it, but I think for me it was, it kind of was a lockdown project. We started it in lockdown when we all had not free time because we were all very busy with our PhDs anyway, even if you guys couldn't go into labs and I couldn't go into the university and talk to my talk to my supervisor face to face. But at least our time was more flexible and that made it a lot more easy with the time zones uh, because these last two episodes have been in three different time zones as it was when we started it's only that um sienna and alistair have switched time zones but it's really hard to to find times when we're all free that work in the in the two different time zones and for me this year it was late in the afternoon on a on a sunday um and it ended up kind of taking up my entire weekend most weekends um, so it wasn't really sustainable. And going into my last year of my PhD, I have to sort of concentrate on on my PhD and on myself, you know, taking my free time to do the things that I need to do in my free time. I'm sad to leave you guys, but I'm sure that you're going to go on to fantastic things and I'm going to continue to be a big fan of the podcast. We've enjoyed having you immensely. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been so much fun speaking from my own experience it's been so much fun to make a podcast with my two best friends and you are always like welcome to pop in for an episode i mean it's not like i'm never going to talk to you again right like We're a gonna... particle <laughs> just like a particle oh my god but yeah i think like obviously we're going to stay in touch we're going to stay friends and stuff like that's yeah. that's not changing obviously. um and um i hope that I can still ask you physics questions, yeah. which I definitely will. So. <laughs> Asking all the physics. Yeah. I'm hoping that at some point we'll be able to be on the same continent mm-hmm. again. Yes. It's been awesome to be able to have physics topics from things that I never knew about or heard about explained in such accessible manner and just like get to learn about fun, cool physics things that aren't like high school physics or boring university <laughs> mechanics. Ugh, cars mm-hmm. going around racetracks. <laughs> <laughs> it's been cool to learn about like the cool side of physics in a way that I can actually understand and feel like, ah, oh, I can know this as a non-physicist. I can know mm-hmm. about Raleigh scattering and about mm-hmm. dark matter and about antimatter and neutrinos and not have to know about cars going around racetracks for that understanding to yeah. work. I'm really <laughs> glad if... Because... Like, so many people are afraid of physics and maths, and, you know, everybody always says to me, can you explain to me something, and I won't understand it, but can you explain it to me, like, wow, and then, you know, if you explain something that they understand, they're completely shocked, and they say, wow, I did understand that, and people think that it's their own failing for being stupid or whatever, and it's not, it's because just the way that physics, I think, is often taught. On that note... (laughs) Thank you so much, um, everybody, for making this podcast possible. Thank you, Sienna, and thank you, Alistair, for um, 
getting it off the ground and for involving me. Thank you to our listeners for listening to it and, um, you know, motivating us to keep making podcasts. Um, That's, I think, it from me. So, my name's Beth. My name's Alistair. And I'm Sienna. And we look forward to you tuning in for season three, whatever that may be. (laughs) We out.